0: Our new sermon series is in the book of Malachi. You may follow along in that book if you would like. And the easiest way to find it is to go to Matthew chapter 1 and then turn your page back 1. And then you're in Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's probably easier starting there than starting in Ezekiel and trying to find Malachi. But as you turn there, I want you to think about this question. The Christian life, what's the use? What's the use in following God? What's the use in trying to live a Christian life? What's the use? Let me give you some reasons to ask that question. Uh, This is what people who aren't Christians do on Sunday mornings. Okay, does that look good to, to you? While they're doing that, this is what you are doing trying to get to church, trying to get breakfast made, trying to get the kids ready, trying to get out the door and make it to church on time. And so sometimes you may ask the question, what's the use? I'd rather be sleeping than trying to rush and get to church. And sometimes we do even attend Bedside Baptist Church. I know that happens sometimes. But anyway, uh, what's the use? Uh, This is what people who aren't Christians can spend their money on because they have so much money, don't they? Uh, you know, but one reason they have more money than maybe Christians do is because Christians do this with their money. Uh, they, you know, they put it in an offering plate and give it to the church. And, and uh, if you're giving it to the church and putting it in the offering plate, you can't use it for your new boat or, or your bills or whatever you could use it for. And so you say, what's the use Well, why am I giving this money when I could use it for something else? And especially if you're not going to church on Sunday, you can use that boat on the lake on Sundays instead of being at church. And I better stop because you might just decide, hey, I'm not going to come to church anymore. But anyway, let me give you a couple more. It's the ball game. Uh, Your non-Christian friends are drinking it up. They're at the bar having fun with their friends. And you're watching the game on a little tiny TV set with some binoculars uh, because you're uh, not there enjoying the beer at the, the bar. And, uh, you know, this time of year is tax time and your non-Christian friend is getting a refund every year. In fact, thousands of dollars every year because he's lying, he's cheating on his taxes. And you're being honest and doing it right and you're writing a check to Uncle Sam. Instead, and you wonder what's the use. You look at your Christian life, and it's not the one that Joel Olstein says that you should have. I'm not trying to make fun of him because he is a preacher and a fellow Christian, but you know, his message is so positive sometimes that it comes across as that every Christian should be living a life full of blessing without any problems, and that if you're not, then you just aren't doing it right. And so you look at your life, and you realize it's not always blessing, and it's not always fun, and it's not always filled with with money and and all these things that it seems like other people have who don't even follow God, and so that's why you ask the question, what's the use? If I weren't a Christian, you might wonder, my life would be different. I could spend my time differently, my money differently. I might even have more things and, and have more options, and the life might be better than living for God. So what's the use? And the people of Malachi's day were asking that question. This is not how the the book begins, but this gives the attitude of the people to whom Malachi is writing. God says that they have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts. So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. They were looking at their country and the people around them, and most of them were saying, God, you tell us to obey you and to sacrifice to you and follow you, But the ones who aren't doing that are the ones that are having the better life. The ones who are doing what you have commanded are the ones who are hurting and are suffering and don't have the blessings. And so, God, what is the use of following you and serving you? The book of Malachi answers that question. In fact, it's almost like a debate between the people and between God. The Messenger, the prophet, all we know is his name. And his name just means my messenger. So it's quite possible that even wasn't really his given name. That's just the name he's given because my messenger, God says, is telling you this message. But before we look at the verses, I want to give you a short history lesson so you know where we are in the Bible and where Malachi was speaking and to whom he was speaking. If you look at this map, you see the Babylonian Empire. If you look over here on your left, you see where Babylon is and Babylonia. Of course, here's Judah. If you remember the stories of Jesus on the, the Sea of Galilee is up here and everything like this. So this is where Judah is. <clears throat> but they were a conquered people. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered them in 586 B.C. and destroyed their city, carried their people off to Babylon, all from the judgment of God. God told them that was going to happen because they were idolaters and worshipped other gods other than the one true God. But God also made a promise to them that one day they would go back. So the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians, as you can see here, their kingdom was even bigger eventually. But again, you see Judah and you see that it is under the Persian rule. And it was a Persian ruler, Cyrus, who said to the Jews, you can go back home. God had promised, you'll stay in Babylon for 70 years. It was 70 years later that they get to go back home. And when they go back home, about 50,000 of them return. And when they return home, they build a temple, and then they build the city of Jerusalem and restore it. So if you remember the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you've heard those names in the Old Testament, it's Ezra who comes and who is a priest and who helps them to rebuild the temple, restore worship. And it's Nehemiah who comes and helps them to rebuild the city walls. And they reintroduce a population into the city. And so there is now, at the time of Malachi, a people living back in the land and a people who have rebuilt the temple and a people who have rebuilt the city. And it's been almost a hundred years since that first group returned home. Yet it was much easier to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple than it was to rebuild the people's hearts. Their hearts still were not close to God. Thankfully, that evil idolatry that their forefathers were so entrenched in was not in them. God's punishment, His discipline had served a purpose and it had worked. The Jews never were again an idolatrous people like they had been before Babylon conquered them. But they still weren't close to God. They still had wickedness and sin and apathy. And that's why God sent Malachi to tell them, cut it out, come back to me. That's what the prophets told over and over. There were many of them, but it was basically the same message. Look at how you're messing up. Repent and come back. And that's what Malachi tells them. In fact, Malachi is the last prophet. That's why Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and then you come to the New Testament. And so it's interesting to me that God has this prophet to come to the people at this time and then doesn't speak to them again for almost 400 years. This must be an important message if this is the last one before the proclamation that the Messiah is here. When we come to Malachi, the first verse says an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. An oracle is not just a message, it's not just a sermon, it's just not a prophecy, it is always a warning that has great danger attached with it. So when they heard that this was an oracle, this was not, oh, here's a message from God, let's listen, it was, we, something bad is going to happen. What's the message that God has for His people? It begins with this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask... How have you loved us? That's the people's question. Listen to it. How have you loved us, God? You know, the disciples asked a similar question when they were in a storm and Jesus was asleep. And they asked Jesus, Do you care if we drown? Do you hear the the tone of the question directed toward God? God, how have you loved us? God, do you care if we drown? There's an accusation in that question, isn't there? That God doesn't love, that God doesn't care. Despite whatever He may say, why would someone ask that? How have you loved us? Or, God, do you care? We often ask that question when life is difficult, when we look around us and we're hurting. Or we look around us and we're suffering. We look around us and our life is chaotic. It's out of control. We're looking for blessing. We're looking for peace. We're looking for a sense, a feeling that God is with us. And we don't see it. So it's natural that we ask God, God, do you love us? Do you care? Because it seems like to me, if you did care, God, and you did love me, I wouldn't be going through this. If you did love me and you did care, my life would be better. It would be easier. It would be less painful. It would be less suffering there be more blessing. But God, I don't see it. So do you really care? Do you really love me? It is a question that many have asked, and I can understand why we ask it in times. But we have an answer from God this morning that gives us great comfort and helps us understand why God Allows difficulties even though he still loves us. And so the first thing God does in this very beginning of this book is he declares his love to the people of Israel. Again, look at the verse. God says, I have loved you. God is declaring his love to the Jews and He's not saying, I used to love you. I know it kind of says that when it says, I have loved you. But he's not saying, I used to love you, but now I don't. He's not saying, I will love you in the future, but now I don't. He's not saying, I will love you if you do something. He's declaring to them, listen, people. The very first thing he tells them is, I love you. God had told them that many times throughout the Old Testament. Just in the book of Deuteronomy alone, when Moses is reminding the people of how God brought them out of Egypt and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. He reminds them over and over in that book how many times God has said, I love you. You know, God has said that to us as New Testament believers, as Christians. Jesus. That wonderful story in John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You know the story of how Uh, Nicodemus comes at night and asks Jesus some questions, and Jesus is trying to help him understand what it means to be born again. That conversation has a verse that many of us learn as our first verse, and still know today. It's John 3.16. It's quite possible that was actually the words of Jesus, and not John. But nevertheless, it tells us the same thing. For God so loved the world. Paul, Peter, John, go throughout the New Testament. The words, the message, the truth that God loves us is all over Scripture. So why would anyone question whether God loves us when He's declared it so clearly and so often? Well, again, it's because we look at our life and it doesn't seem like it. You know, it's one thing to hear God loves us. It's another thing to experience it, to feel it, to know it. We often say that too, don't we? I mean, We can say, I love you. Those three words are easy to say. It's harder to show it and demonstrate it and for someone who hears those words to really feel like we love them. So I can understand why we're the same way with God. So God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I love you and leave it at that. He tells them how He has loved them. And I love this about God's love. Psalm 100 verse 5 says this, For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So not only does He love us, He always will love us. Always has loved us. And He tells us how He has loved us. He tells us. The Jews in Malachi 1. The next verse, he says, Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now, what does he mean by that? Let me explain to you by talking to you about Jacob and Esau. Maybe you remember their story in Genesis. Uh, Their parents were uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, Isaac was Abraham's son. And Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys. In fact, Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob also came out grabbing the heel of his brother. And so even before they were born, uh, uh, Rebecca realized that these two twins were just tussling and fighting inside of her womb. And she even asked God what was happening. God told her, there's two nations in there. Well, no wonder it hurts. <laughs> there's two nations in there. But God was telling her what was going to happen, and it did happen once they were born. In fact, Jacob's name means he grabs the heel or deceiver. I mean, this was the type of guy he was. He was a trickster. And so you know the stories and how they happened between Jacob and Esau. Esau was one who loved to be outdoors and loved to hunt, and Jacob was one who liked to stay in the tent and stay at home with Mom. And so Rebekah's favorite was Jacob, and Isaac's favorite was Esau. And you remember the story of how uh, one day Esau was so hungry when he came back from hunting, that he wanted something to eat. And Jacob had some stew, but it would only give it to him if he was given the birthright. And so Esau said, well, what good's a birthright if I don't have any food? And so he foolishly just says, sure, have it, whatever, give me the food. And then later, when it was time for the blessing, Jacob deceived his father Isaac by pretending to be Esau so that Isaac would bless him. Him instead, and so he did. He tricked his father. He got the blessing. When Esau found out, he was furious and said he was going to kill Jacob. So Jacob had to flee, and because of that, he never saw his mom or dad again. He flees, but eventually does come back after he works for his uncle. After he has a couple of wives and some concubines who give him twelve children, who become the twelve children, of the twelve tribes of Israel. He comes back to his brother Esau. And Jacob, the whole time when he's coming back, is worried that Esau is going to get revenge. But Esau doesn't. Esau welcomes him back. But then they go their separate ways, never to meet again. But they do become two nations. Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. His 12 children become the 12 tribes of Israel and become the nation of Israel to whom Malachi is speaking. It is the nation, the person whom God chose. He didn't choose Esau. Uh, Esau was the firstborn. The firstborn was supposed to get the blessing, was supposed to get the birthright, was supposed to get twice the inheritance. The firstborn was supposed to get all that. But Esau didn't get that. Because God didn't choose Esau, He chose Jacob. And so what's the point of what God is saying? He's saying this. When God chose Jacob, He chose Jacob Out of love. It's a crude analogy, but imagine going to a pet store to pick out a pet. You look at all the cute puppies, and you choose one. You choose one because you like it. You choose one because you love it. You don't choose it because you hate it. You don't choose it because you don't care. You look at it, and you fall in love with it, so to speak, and so you take it home with you. You choose it out of love, right? You don't choose it out of spite or hatred or indifference. That's what God is saying. I chose you, not out of indifference or hatred. I chose you out of love. That's how I've shown you the love. Esau didn't get the love. And God has told us the same thing. He's told us as Christians. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. For he, God, God chose us in him, Jesus. So, for God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favor and will to the praise of His glorious grace, that He favored us with Him in the Beloved. So what Paul is saying, Christians, believers in Jesus, God loves you. He chose you. Even before you were born. Even before uh, the world was created. God chose those that were going to be saved. Now, this bothers some people. When they hear that, they also hear, but Paul doesn't say this, they also hear that God chose those who were going to hell. That's not what Paul says. And so you try to figure it out in your mind. It doesn't really kind of fit together. Let me ask you this question. If you flip a coin, you have a head on one side and a tail on the other side, Right? So we always think of it, there's one side, we even use the phrase, there's two sides to every coin, meaning there's two sides to one thing. It's one coin, it has two sides, and you flip it, you get heads or tails, but I guess it could be flipped and you come up with this. Now, I don't know, I guess physically, theoretically, it could happen. So now the heads and tail, which is it? I guess it's both. If you flipped it, it's heads and tail, it's at the same time, and that's the truth of Scripture. Let me explain what I'm saying. God says this throughout Scripture that He chooses those that He saves. But He always gives that message as a word of comfort. He doesn't give that message to people who don't know Him, who aren't His children. That message He gives to them is come to me, believe in me. Because this is also true. Jesus died for everybody. And anybody on this planet, anybody who believes in Jesus will be saved. Anybody. The Bible tells us both is true. Salvation is available to everyone. Anyone who believes will be saved. That's why we proclaim the gospel to everybody that we can. Because anybody who believes will be saved. And God says, all those who are saved, I chose you before you even knew me, before this world even existed. And God says both are true. We try to figure out how God can be completely sovereign and we can have complete free will, and we try to put it together. And the Bible doesn't even try to put it together. It just tells us both are true. So if you ask me how both are true, I'll ask you, how is the Trinity true? I don't know, but the Bible says it's so. And sometimes we just have to accept that because, honestly... We can't figure out every single thing in this universe. If we could, it wouldn't be a very big God or a very big universe if we could figure it out. And so I want you to hear this. It's the, God's message of choosing is always a message of comfort. To know that God has always had a plan for our lives. To know that God was always with us. That He was always interested in us. That He was always working in our lives to bring us to Him. What an awesome truth. To, to, to realize that even before you were born, God already had a plan for you. A plan of love and a perfect plan. And when you were born and everyone was ooing and awing over you, God said, I've chosen this one. I've got something great for this one. And then God was using all the details of your life. People in your life and sermons that you heard and people that talked to you. He was using all this stuff to bring you to Him. How much love does that show? It shows us that it wasn't just, oh, I made all these people, and I'm going to just stand up here and wait for everybody who wants to get it here. You know, I'll just wait for them. Whoever comes, come on. When you get here, oh, good to see you. Good to see you. I'm glad you made it. Glad you got through the crowd. You know, that's not how it is. God loves us that much that he chose us. He also shows us his love by blessing. And this is what it says in Malachi. The next verse is, I turn his mountains. Now who God is talking about is He continue to talk about Esau. Esau was the, the founder of a great nation, the Edomites. And this is what God says about the Edomites. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. What God is saying to the Israelites is this. Look at Esau's descendants. Look at the Edomites. Look at their condition. What's happened to them? They were destroyed by the Babylonians just like the Jews were. But God never promised to Esau's descendants, the Edomites, that he was going to rebuild their city. He never promised them he was going to rebuild a temple for them. Never promised them they would get to go back home. He never promised that blessing for Esau's descendants, but he did promise it for Jacob's descendants. And that's God's point. The Edomites think they're great, they think they're going to rebuild, but they're not. But you, look what I've done for you. I've blessed you with a homecoming. I've blessed you with a temple to worship me in. I've blessed you with the city fortified by strong walls. I've blessed you by being with you from the very beginning. When I chose Jacob, I've blessed you greatly. That's how you know I have loved you. So the people say, how have you loved us, God? God says, I chose you. And I'm telling you I love you and I've blessed you. The same is true for us. Think about all the blessings that we have in life. And any time we want to think God doesn't love us, think about how He has blessed us. And there's a hymn that reminds us to count our blessings and to count them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. When we do that, it does put everything into perspective and does reveal to us, wow, God really does love us. Look at everything He has done for us. Uh, Title of this sermon series, Extraordinary Life Really, for this reason. In this whole book, when we look at the next couple of weeks, uh, God is saying to them, you can have an extraordinary life. Because they're not living an extraordinary life in Malachi's day. They're miserable, and they're down, and they're looking around. There's no blessing, and they're just dismal. And God's saying, you can live an extraordinary life. With an exclamation point. And they're saying, really? It certainly doesn't look like it. (laughs) How's that going to happen? With a big old question mark. And the people respond to God, extraordinary life? With a big question mark, because they can't see it. And God shouts back at them with an exclamation point, really? You can have that. So brothers and sisters, you can have an extraordinary life. And you may be looking at your life and saying, really? Because it certainly doesn't look like it. And you're asking God, how can it happen? And he says, it really can happen. And this is the first place it happens. By knowing and experiencing the love of God. Remember when Jesus spoke to the church in Revelation, the church at Ephesus. He condemns them for not loving, leaving their first love. He says, repent, come back. That's how you get your life back on track. And that's how your life can become an extraordinary one. You focus it on Jesus and his love for you. The people in Malachi's day, some of them did that. I want to go back to this verse each week because I want to give you a solution each week. Just not the questions and the problems and the debates that they had. It says, "At at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So what, this is what happened. There were some who listened. Because they listened, they feared the Lord. And I'll give you my simple definition of fearing the Lord it's to take God seriously. And whatever He says and whatever He does, if you fear Him, you'll take Him seriously. People who don't take God seriously ignore Him, laugh at Him, reject Him, hear Him, and eh, whatever. But someone who fears God listens and takes it seriously, obeys, changes his life, does what God says. Is concerned about the warnings that he or she hears that God says will happen. And that's what some of these people did. They heard it. They took God seriously. They wrote their names down, making a commitment to God. And God saw it. He said, I'm going to have a special place for these people. They heard my messenger, and they listened, and they've changed their lives. So each and every week when we hear the people complaining and God giving an answer, this is the response. Hear God, take Him seriously, and do what He says. This week, He said, I've loved you. He wants us to recognize it. He wants us to live our lives based on it. He wants us to love others like He has loved us. And so if you ever question whether God loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. We usually hear that and think of it means God loved us so, 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 so much. You know, like how much did God love us? He loved us this much. You know, you see the little kids reaching out. Or we even think, well, he reached out this much on the cross. But I think the better translation is not that he loved us so, 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 so much. What it really means is God loved us in this way. This is how he showed us his love. He proved his love in this way. What way? He sent His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will never perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God has loved us. We never have to question whether He cares. We never have to question whether He loves us. He declared it. He has chosen us. He has blessed us. And Jesus died for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your love. My prayer this morning is for those who just don't sense it or feel it. Lord, I pray that this morning they would. They would know that you love them. I pray especially for those going through difficult times of hurting or suffering or uh, just a life that's not extraordinary. Lord, I pray that rather than them questioning your experience care or your concern or your love, that, Lord, they are trusting and clinging to your declaration of your love for us. I thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us, that you have saved us. I thank you, Lord, that you bless us in so many ways. I pray that we would leave today filled with your love and sharing that love with others. Lord, I hear your word as it's spoken to us in in 1 John. John tells us to love others because you have loved us first. So may we do so in this week, Lord. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.